But this morning, I invite you to take God's Word and to turn in the New Testament to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, One of the uh, prison epistles, along with Ephesians, uh, Colossians, and Philemon, uh, the reason that uh, Philippians, as well as the other three, are referred to as uh, prison epistles is because of the circumstances surrounding their writing. The Apostle Paul, when he penned this letter, was imprisoned in Rome uh, from A.D. 60 to A.D. 62. Uh, You can read about this period in Paul's life in the final verses of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, we learn a little bit about the situation that Paul found himself in. We learn, for instance, that he was allowed to stay by himself, which doesn't sound all that bad, except that he was... Scripture says he was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him, says uh, verse 16 of Acts 28, and also at his own expense, uh, says verse 30. That is to say that he was, uh, what we would say is is he was under house arrest. We also learn that Paul was permitted uh, during this time to receive visitors and that he had opportunity on many occasions to preach uh, and to teach the gospel, which he did. Uh, The last verse of Acts says that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So uh, this wasn't some sort of damp, uh, necessarily damp and dark uh, dungeon. Nevertheless, uh, Paul was confined Uh, Not able to to travel, uh, not able to visit the churches that he loved and that he had affection for and cared deeply about. Uh, In fact, three three years had passed since Paul was initially arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, And then when he finally makes it to Rome, he's held there for two additional years. So it was toward that end, uh, the end of that two-year period that he wrote this particular letter to the church at Philippi, a church that was founded about a decade earlier on Paul's second missionary journey. You may remember how during that time, Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and imprisoned, but released by an earthquake at midnight as they were praying and singing hymns to God. And that wasn't the only miracle. Uh, Lydia, uh, the seller of purple fabrics, heard the gospel. She became the first Christian convert in Europe. The Lord, uh, by his power, opened her heart to respond to the message that Paul was speaking and declaring. Uh, There was also the, the jailer, you may remember, who considered taking his own life when he thought that the prisoners had all escaped after that earthquake in the middle of the night. God also worked in his heart, and he believed the gospel and was baptized with his whole household. All that to say that Paul wasn't in the easiest of circumstances. Uh, Five years uh, is, is a long time uh, to be dealing with what you might call legal issues or criminal charges against you, uh, dealing with dangerous travel conditions and being pulled away from people and the ministry uh, that you love and that you've been called to. 
And regarding the Philippians, their circumstances weren't easy either. They were living in a harsh environment. We obviously picked that up just from the narrative there in Acts when we learn about Paul's visit to that particular community. They were in a harsh, harsh culture, you might say, facing various threats, threats from without and threats from within. In fact, Paul in this, this letter in chapter 3 will talk to the church about uh, sort of warn the church regarding false, false teachers. And so there were thre- threats from the community as well as threats that were infiltrating the church. And so even though the church at Philippi, in, in some respects, we might consider to be a healthy, a fairly healthy church, they, they certainly had a track record of being uh, a generous people, uh, giving sacrificially to Paul's ministry and to the saints in Jerusalem, uh, meeting their needs. But that doesn't mean that they were immune to problems and spiritual struggles. And so Paul writes to them. Uh, he writes to them for, uh, I guess, maybe several different reasons. One was just simply to update the, the Philippians on his particular situation, him being there under house arrest in Rome and wanting them to understand that situation and how that was unfolding. Uh, he included in this letter uh, essentially a thank you uh, to them for their financial gift. They had, they had pulled a contribution together and sent it to Paul uh, to help with some of his expenses. In fact, they had a, again, they had a history of doing this. They had been willing to give generously to him from the very uh, beginning, really, of that, of that relationship between him and, and the church. But perhaps the main reason, I guess, Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians was to exhort them uh, towards greater unity and joy in Christ. And, And that's the idea that I want to consider this morning, this issue of the believer's joy. The reality is most people that that I meet and know want to be happy. Uh, Now, many of them are not. Uh, Many of them are miserable. Uh, Many of them can't put their finger on the the source necessarily of their misery. But in general, people want to be happy. Many of them actually make it a lifelong pursuit to be uh, spending money on various things, uh, traveling to new places or experiencing new and exciting activities. But that kind of happiness depends on positive circumstances. And the question is, what happens when your circumstances are not positive? What happens when your plans get uh, derailed, sometimes at the very last minute? What happens when your expectations get shattered, get crushed? For some, their, their happiness quickly disappears, dissipates. And despair quickly takes its place. Depression sets in, anxieties and fears. But in bold contrast to that sort of temporal happiness stands the experience of true joy and contentment. And that is what Paul is describing, a joy that is produced by the Spirit of God in, in, a, in a believer's life, in a Christian's life, a joy that is is not just some sort of feeling or emotion. It's, it's a joy that is, that is grounded in, in biblical truth and in God's character and in gospel realities, a joy, again, that cannot be taken away, cannot be taken away by people, cannot be taken away by 
unexpected circumstances. And as you read this letter, this theme of joy is, is really hard to miss. In one form or another, it's mentioned 19 times in this short letter, and it's mentioned in all four chapters. Again, keep in mind that when Paul wrote, for example, in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, he wasn't sitting in comfort or in pleasant surroundings. He was imprisoned. Uh, He was restricted. Uh, he, He was, and this would irk a lot of people, he was constantly monitored, unable to control his environment provoked at times by those who wanted to cause him distress. He actually mentions this this reality in chapter 1. And yet, Paul could rejoice. So what can we learn from him and from this epistle about joy? And to answer that question, I want us to look at one small portion of this book, and that is the section in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. And you can follow along as I read from the English Standard Version, Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, there are several things that we discover, I think, about Christian joy in this Passage, you'll notice the emphasis on joy and rejoicing there in verses 17 and 18. Paul tells the Philippians, I, essentially, I am glad and you should be. But where does that kind of attitude come from? How, how do you get to that place in your Christian life where, where you can rejoice in whatever is going on in your life and around you? And there are three keys that Paul indicates here that I think are helpful for us. And the first one is simply this. Christian joy arises out of a contentedness with God. Christian joy arises out of a contentedness with God. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This command comes immediately after the command in verse 12, for them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, to live out the salvation that God has granted them in Christ. Not to work for their salvation, but to work out their salvation. Not perfectly, but certainly with intensity and with effort and with a a striving to be obedient, not not desiring or wanting to be casual about their sanctification, but pursuing it with a desire to please God and a concern about offending Him. And knowing, verse 13, that as they are working out their salvation, that God is working in them, energizing their desires and actions. He says there in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, don't miss that last part, that very last phrase. Paul, Paul is basically saying this, your sanctification is God's pleasure. Or your sanctification is his satisfaction. It brings him satisfaction, which makes sense because that's, that's why he gives you all of the resources you need as a Christian to pursue such a thing. Your Christian life and, and my Christian life are about his good pleasure. They're about his purpose. And his purpose is to sanctify us so that we can be useful for him. But rather than submitting to that, rather than sort of humbling ourselves and submitting to that reality and, and doing what, what we're commanded in that verse to strive and doing all that we can to live according to our salvation and actively pursuing obedience, here's what we normally do. We, we complain. We complain about the hard work, and in some cases, we work hard at complaining, which is why Paul builds, I think, on the foundational teaching on sanctification in verses 12 and 13 with this command in verse 14 not to grumble and dispute, because this is what we do in certain situations in our lives. In certain situations, not the easy ones, of course. We don't do this when things are going well and the way we expect and in the easy circumstances. But in the difficult ones, the challenging ones, the, the ones that, that, that disappoint us, sometimes we think to ourselves, why does it have to be this way? Why does my marriage have to be hard? Why does my spouse, why is my spouse so slow to change? Why is my professor at school so demanding? Why won't my children believe and follow Christ? Why are my friends so, so fickle and shallow? Why is it so hard to get ahead financially? Why am I the only, why am I the, the one dealing with so many health problems? Why did my loved one have to die at such a young age? Why did my coworker get the promotion instead of me when I've worked so hard for so long? And what happens is we get so focused on these, these areas, if you will, of our lives, like our education or our bank accounts or our families and, or even our fitness. And of course, God gives us those things. They are tremendous gifts and blessings from him, but the ultimate purpose is not those things. His purpose is our sanctification. And we're not to dispute it or to grumble against it. Or to put a finer point on it, we're not to grumble or argue with God about that. To complain or to to throw up arguments against God for this purpose that we have for our Christian existence, which is to be delivered from sin, to be set free from sin and to be conformed into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. You think about this. God could have saved us 
He could have forgiven us the day that we recognized our need for Christ and, and we turned from our sin. God could have saved us and forgiven us in that moment and immediately taken us to be with Christ, immediately taken us to glory, but he didn't do that. Rather, he left us here to put his glory and his grace and his power on display in a different way. As day by day, we say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Day to day and, and moment to moment in our Christian lives, when we're, we're faced with temptations and allurements and we say no to worldly desires and say yes to good deeds, we say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit, no to the lies and yes to the truth, no to Satan and yes to our Savior. Do we do that perfectly? Obviously not. Do we sometimes fail? Of course. But, but do we continue to strive? Do we continue to press on? Yes, we do. And the reason that we do is because God is at work. I don't know your particular family situation right now. I don't, I don't know your job and, and all of the people that you interact with on a daily basis and the people that, that work at that place. I don't know the students who sit beside you in class, but here is what I do know. I know that God's purpose in all of those situations and all of those details and all of those relationships is to sanctify you. And I know that you're not supposed to argue about that. This is a, this is a problem more times than we care to admit that we put what we want in our homes and or schools, or jobs, or even churches above God's purpose and what pleases Him, namely our devotion to Christ and our purity and holiness. And at the heart of the issue, we become discontent with God. Interestingly, Paul's language here in verse 14 echoes that of Old Testament descriptions of the generation of Israelites who passed through the wilderness. Uh, that generation that was led by Moses, uh, in fact, even more explicit than that is the close relationship between what Paul says in verse 15 and what is stated in Deuteronomy 32 verse 5, where Moses actually calls that group a crooked and twisted generation. The Apostle Paul clearly knew of these events in Israel's history and and the significance of those events. In fact, he had already written about them at this point, by the time he pens this particular letter to the Philippian church, he had already written about these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, about Israel's failure to grasp their spiritual privilege and the purpose of their redemption, which raises a question, why did God deliver the Hebrews? People. Why did Yahweh deliver the Hebrew people from bondage in Egypt? Did he, did he do it so that they could go into the promised land and settle into their own comfortable lives and homes and never have any contact with their pagan neighbors? No. They were to be delivered by God's power and continue trusting in God's power as they possess the land and then live in such a way as to attract the nations to them. They were the people of God. 
They were a, a channel, if you will, through which God's redemptive purposes would flow. But what did they actually do? That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to live distinct from the people around them, but in a way that would attract the attention of those around them and be a light to the nations. But what did they actually do? Well, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He tells the church at Corinth, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ." Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. What did they desire? Well, they desired, I guess in broad terms, something other than God's purpose for them. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. So he gets more specific here. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And then notice verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things, verse 11, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Israel had this, 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 this uh, calling, they had this, this purpose, but, but what did they actually do? Well, from what we read about in Scripture, and there's a lot about their history and the way that they responded to God in those years. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 11 and chapters 14, 16, 20, and 21. And what you find is that Israel repeatedly complained about their hardships. They, compl- they, they, they repeatedly complained about their hardships and wished, in some cases, that they had never left Egypt. They complained about the supposed lack of, of, of drinkable water. They, they complained at times about a supposed lack of adequate food supply. They complained about their conditions. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And ultimately, their complaining turned into outright rebellion. They questioned God. They, they doubted his promises. They rejected God's purpose, God's chosen leaders, and God himself. Or, to use the phraseology of Philippians 2.12, they were delivered but failed to work out their deliverance. They were saved, but they failed to work out their salvation. And so Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, which, which, if you think about it, are the very opposites of fear and trembling. So that is the first key, I think, to Christian joy. It begins with a contentedness with God, which means 
whatever the situation, wherever, whatever the marriage, whatever the family, whatever the, the school or the work environment, whatever the sphere of influence that God has placed you in, you accept it willingly and without murmuring complaint, much less resentment. Because it's never right to complain and argue against anything the Lord calls you to do or about any circumstance, circumstance that he sovereignly allows. So do you long to experience joy in the Christian life? According to Paul's words here to the Philippians, then determine by God's grace to not resist his purpose for your life. Determine to cooperate with his work of sanctification, whatever that takes, guarding against passivity, but also guarding against grumbling and disputing. The second key that Paul indicates is this, Christian joy arises out of a fulfillment of your purpose. Christian joy arises out of a fulfillment of your purpose, and that purpose is undoubtedly connected to what Paul has already broadly mentioned in verses 12 and 13. But here in verse 15, he gets a little more specific as he further explains why it is that the Philippians should not complain. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. That is why you don't resist God in your heart. That is why you don't argue against him, because everything that he is doing in your life is good, and everything that he allows is meant to test your character and to test your obedience. That's exactly what he was doing in the life of Israel in those 40 years in the wilderness, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And so Paul says, you don't resist that. You you humble yourself under his mighty hand. You, You cooperate with his good pleasure and purpose and find contentment in that, that you may be blameless and innocent, or as the New American Standard says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent which again speaks about this, I think, main purpose of your life, your reason reason for for being here on planet earth, to to have your character tested so that the power of God is on display, to have the enduring preservation of God on display in your life so that whoever God brings into your sphere for redemptive reasons or for gospel witness or influence, whether they accept it or reject it, you will have fulfilled your purpose. That is what you are saved to do. And everything is in that vein or funnels into that. So wherever God puts you, he puts you in that job. He, he, he puts you with those parents or he puts you on that street in your subdivision or he puts you on that sports team or in that marriage, he does it so that you prove to be innocent and blameless in order to be this light. 
with all of your failings, with all of your struggles, and with all of your, your unbelief, but, but you continue to strive in your sanctification until you meet the Lord. Now, is that going to be difficult? Well, of course it's going to be difficult. That, that's why Paul says what he says back in verses 12 and 13, but our tendency, again, is to complain about how difficult things are. Our tendency is to ignore the resources that God has provided for us in the battle and and to not believe that God is at work. Again, what we ought to do is to walk in humility and trust, knowing that our obedience is going to be used by the Lord to accomplish His redeeming purpose. And the truth is, you and I have no idea how God may use those things. What God may do, I mean, I, I, could, I just this week, just thinking of numerous examples of even in my own life, in my own, own testimony, and, I, and I'm sure if you've been walking for the Lord for any length of time, you could give, you could give numerous examples of how, of how God used that in your life, that, that time of testing, and, and the fact that others could, could observe your life, and that you could be approved, and that they could see the power of the gospel, not just to forgive you of your sin, but to deliver you from the power of sin in your life, and to keep you for eternity. And going through those trials, and staying engaged in those relationships, and, and seeing how God re- uses that for redemptive reasons. But he does, he uses it. In fact, Paul, Paul did not know at first how God was going to use his own situation. Listen to what he says back in chapter 1, verse 12, though. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so Paul says, when you feel like hitting eject, when you feel like withdrawing, when, you, when the pressure is on and when your, your integrity and your purity and, and your convictions are being tested, he's saying, don't, don't hit the eject button, stay in the test. Because through the difficulties and the circumstances, God will continue to highlight the main thing as you're, as you're being saved by him, sustained by him, and providentially placed exactly where he wants you to be. Stay in the test so that through it, you will come out innocent and blameless, more holy, more, more like Christ, with the outward evidence of integrity and purity, with no one being able to, to point to some area of your life where you've been unfaithful or, or not been striving to, to please and to honor the Lord. The truth is, most of you right now are in the test. You may not even know what God's ultimate outcome is going to be, but you know that you're in it because that is your main priority and everything else that is going on in your life, if you're able to connect it to that main thing, God's redemptive purposes, God can test you and approve you through it. And you don't complain. You don't complain about it under your breath. You don't throw up arguments against it. You simply embrace it as that which God has for you. 
You don't do what the, the Israelites did. Lord, why, why, are you, why are you doing this to us? Why are you allowing all of these things? Why did you give us these leaders? I thought you were going to provide for us. I mean, you can go to the Lord. You should go to the Lord. You can, you can go to the Lord in times like that and ask for, for wisdom from him on how to handle the trial. James 1 encourages you to do that. You might even pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119.73, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. But you dare not dispute and complain when God's goal in redemption is whatever he wants to do to prove you to be innocent and blameless in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What else does Paul say you and I are supposed to be? Not just pure and sincere, but notice children of God who reflect our heavenly Father's character children of God who are separate from the unbelieving world because God wants to set you apart from the environment that you're in as a light. And if that is what he does, then of course you're going to be in situations where people don't agree with you. Of course you're going to to be in family situations where you're rejected. Some of you may even be headed into some circumstances like that this this week and through the holiday season or maybe it's a work situation and, and, and people are... Are, are slandering you, but you should expect that because God is purposing to set you apart. That is what Paul says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. That, that is to say, above legitimate accusation. So sure, some, some will accuse you, but, it, but what Paul's saying is uh, if you go through the test and you're proven, then then they may accuse you, but it, but it won't be legitimate. It won't be credible because the contrast is so obvious. You're blameless, and the generation around you is crooked. It's, it's actually, scolios is the term which describes something that is bent or curved or in a spiritual sense, something that is perverse or corrupt. And the generation around you, he says, is, is twisted. It's, it's, uh, again, in a spiritual sense, this idea of, of depraved. But you, Paul says, you are light. That is God's purpose, for you to be a light in the midst of the unbelieving world. And so you don't isolate, you don't pull away from all these unbelievers, you don't run to, to, the, to the hills, you live out your life among those who don't know Christ. You show yourselves to be blameless and innocent, faultless and unmixed or untainted by the stain of hypocrisy. You show yourselves to be children of God living in purity and integrity and as lights in the world like like bright stars on a clear but dark night. And God is setting you apart in your sphere for that main purpose, for you to be a light as, he says in verse 16, as you hold fast the word of life. Again, that is what God wants. God wants everyone to see his power as you, his servant, his child, his follower, hold fast to the truth. As his truth is, is, is strengthened in you, as his truth grows in you, and as it perver- preserves you through every test and every trial, and, 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 and the world around you will see that. And some, and again, some of you have testimonies you could share, some will believe. 
because it's supernatural. It is the message that produces life, eternal life, and it sustains life. So sometimes you, you and I, we, we, we can lose sight of the work that God is doing. You get agitated with, with unbelievers. You, you get upset about all that is going on in, in the culture. You get caught up in all of your own interests and pursuits. You, you don't want to suffer for Christ, and you don't think about God's purpose for you. And so you, you don't consider how... God wants to do things in your life and to bring people into your path directly and indirectly so that he can demonstrate that you are empowered by his word of life. That you were redeemed, you were born again by his word, that you were transformed by this word, that, that you're not the same that you same person that you used to be. You don't think the way that you used to think. You think with the word of life in mind and you hold it fast in the midst of a world that wants you to quit. They want you to throw in the towel. They want you to defect, but you don't because your priority is to live out your purpose, which is redemptive influence or gospel influence. And God saved you to have that. That is why you live. And that is also a source of unspeakable joy. Knowing your purpose, knowing not just that God intends to sanctify you, but that through your sanctification and the testing of your faith and the work of his spirit and the word in your life that God wants to use you to advance his salvation plan. That is why he has you where he has you. Whether it's the prison or the palace, the campus or the family gathering, the hospital, or the marketplace. He has you there for his good pleasure and for your joy. Let me give you one final key regarding Christian joy, and that's this. Christian joy arises out of a commitment to sacrificial service. Christian joy arises out of a commitment to sacrificial service. Notice what Paul says here at the end of verse 16 as a as sort of a, a further way to motivate the Philippians to heed and to apply what he has already said in the previous verses. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is interesting because what you would expect Paul to do would be to remind these believers that one day they will stand before Christ and give an account, which they will. And there are other scriptures that that point to that fact, but, but that isn't what Paul says in this passage. What he tells them is that he is the one that will stand before Christ and give an account for how he has ministered the gospel and how he has been faithful or not to care for those souls entrusted to him, the Philippians being an obvious part of that group. From all that we can gather, Paul clearly had ministered faithfully to these people. He even refers to this ministry as running and laboring, emphasizing the toil and and the diligence and the energy that he had expended. 
and emphasizing his own purity and discipline required to finish the race without being disqualified. As Paul stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he, he ran to win. The word for labor here was sometimes used to refer to the weariness and the exhaustion of having been beaten, which was not an exaggeration in Paul's case. As I mentioned earlier, Paul and Silas, when they were in Philippi, were literally beaten with rods and thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. And Paul doesn't want all of that to be in vain. He doesn't want that ministry to be fruitless. Rather, when he stands before the Lord Jesus in the future, he wants to have reason to boast because of the character and the obedience that the church exhibits. All of those things that have become a part of their lives as they have worked out what God has worked in them. In that, Paul desires to glory, to glory in what God accomplished through him as evidenced by the faithfulness of the, of the Philippians to not complain about their lives and dispute with God, but to fulfill their purpose to be lights in a dark world and to hold fast to the truth to have reason to boast in what God has done through him to affect the church. And in light of that day, and because of their love for Paul, this would motivate the church to press on in a, a pursuit of integrity and purity and perseverance. And so Paul goes on here in verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Paul here is drawing upon the Old Testament sacrificial system. And in fact, he's drawing upon a very specific part, part of that, where you had a drink offering that was added to the main sacrifice that was being made. And so the idea was this, that when a burnt offering was presented on the altar, a drink offering of wine or in some cases uh, olive oil would sometimes be poured out over it or alongside it in order to complement the sacrifice. And so you had the burnt offering, that was the main sacrifice, and the drink offering was seen as sort of its complement. In this metaphor, Paul's using the, what's interesting is that the sacrificial service of the Philippians is pictured as the main offering. And Paul's own ministry is pictured as the drink offering. Because of their faith in Christ, as an expression of their faith in, in the Lord, this church was characterized, Paul says, by sacrificial service. And Paul is not exhorting them. He's, there's not a command here or calling them to make some change in what they're doing. He's just really encouraging them by highlighting their past faithfulness and by implication seeking to spur them on to excel still more by reminding them that their sacrificial service is like a burnt offering that is presented to the Lord himself. And the metaphor doesn't stop there because, as I said, Paul sees himself and his own ministry as the drink offering that was poured out in addition to that main sacrifice. His ministry, in a way, enhancing their ministry. I just thought that alone is just it's such, it's such a helpful picture of what ministry is all about, that, that, that you think of what you're doing as the complement, as the thing that would enhance the church's ministry, rather than seeing your sacrifice and your service as the main offering, and then what others are doing as the complement. Paul, Paul had the right perspective, uh, certainly a, a humble perspective, very helpful 
for us. So what's the point? The point is that in the mind of Paul, life wasn't about getting. Life was about giving. It wasn't about personal comfort for Paul. It was about demonstrating and showing love. It wasn't pleasant circumstances. It was about spending his life as an opportunity to serve others. For Paul, joy was found in a life of sacrifice for others, for the church, for the lost, ultimately for the sake of Christ. He wasn't bitter about his situation. He wasn't bitter about the change of plans or or the difficult people that he had to deal with. He wasn't resentful about the suffering and the persecution or about the false accusations or even prison or even the possibility of death. His entire perspective was summed up in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because of that perspective, nothing could take away his joy. Even if his life ended in martyrdom, he would rejoice. And he wanted the Philippians to experience that same Joy, And so he says at the end of verse 17, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And so Paul saw himself as a co-laborer in ministry alongside of these believers. And between them, their sacrifices before the Lord consisted of themselves, themselves presented in faithful service during life and, if necessary, in the ultimate and final sacrifice of death. And in the midst of all of this, Paul saw the situation as an opportunity not only to rejoice, but to share this joy with one another. Think of it this way. It's like Paul making that first visit to Philippi. When he came to Philippi, he was, he was willing to be poured out for whatever God wanted to do in that city. He, he didn't know what the Lord wanted to do. He was just trying to, to be faithful and be a man of integrity and purity and, and to not adulterate the word of God or the gospel. And so he was just faithfully serving Christ. And he was persecuted for that. He was beaten. He preached. But guess what? A church was born through his influence. And so now he writes back to this church and says, listen, I'm telling you this, even if I am poured completely out so that you could get saved and, and that, so that you would grow in your faith and become useful to the master, I rejoice and I share that with you. That's all I live for and I haven't labored in vain. If God uses me to sacrifice my life for your faith, I couldn't be more satisfied. And I want to share my joy with you. And I'm urging you to think about how you got saved and the influence that you now have at Philippi. Consider that influence. And I want you, he's telling us, I want you to share your joy with me because that is is what fuels my passion. So what about you today? Are you in need of more joy? Maybe you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've put your hope in many things. 
but those things have failed you time and time again, God will never fail you. If you turn from your life of sin and you trust in Jesus to save you, he will never cast you out and he will turn your sorrow into joy. And if you're here and you're a Christian, the Lord desires for your joy to be made complete, for for you to be overflowing with joy, for you to be characterized by a joy that transcends your circumstances. Maybe you need to commit to the sacrificial giving of yourself in ministry to others. Maybe you need to commit to fulfilling your purpose. Or maybe you need to repent of your grumbling and your arguing and commit yourself to working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Whatever the need, I pray that you'll look to the Lord, the source of true joy. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for, again, this very needed reminder from Philippians. We, we need it over and over again because we are so prone to a complaining heart. Fortunately, it seems the more that we have, the less we appreciate. Even in the spiritual realm, in our spiritual lives, that's the case. It is the, it is the fallenness in us. And our complaining becomes so much of a, of a habit and a routine that sometimes we don't even realize it. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see it. Help us to hear with our ears the complaints of our mouth. Help us to understand the disputing in our heart when we question you and, and why, why we must do what we must do and why it is the way it is. Help us, Lord, to do all things in working out our salvation. All things without complaining, with joy and thankfulness that we might be children that bring honor to our Heavenly Father, that we might be shining lights in a dark world, that we might bring eternal joy and rejoicing to the heart of those who have labored on our behalf because most of us have had faithful shepherds, teachers, mentors who have given portions of their time, energy, their, their very lives And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful so that they may come in the day of Christ to see that their labor was not in vain. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing in our church. Thank you for all the ways in which you have manifested your power and grace. Forgive us, Lord, for our complaints and set our feet on a path of obedience. For Christ's sake, amen.